0: ont par nous se sont fait rendez-vous ils sont réunis ensemble pour un voyage à entreprendre oh oui don faites vos sacs pour partir pour le l'exandaic quand le train est arrivé conducteur est débarqué il à nos voyageurs welcome
1: back to the american writers 100 pages at a time podcast in each episode, I look at around 100 pages of the works of great American writers using the wonderful Library of America as my source material. We're currently working our way through the works of Jack London, and we are um, in the middle of our study of the Sea Wolf*, his 1904 novel about Darwinism, social Darwinism, violence, hierarchy, philosophy, that's just a lot of things. Um, one of his most memorable uh, books and certainly his most memorable character wolf larsen is front and center in this book in the previous episode i looked at the first hundred pages of in the first 13 chapters or so of the sea wolf and we talked mostly about wolf larsen because he's the dominant figure in the early chapters of of this novel and i do think that changes by the end of the novel where other characters reach the forefront such as our narrator humphrey van wyden and he's partially the person I want to focus on today but I also want to talk more generally about resistance and uh, a little bit about environment too as well as give you uh, get you up to speed if you haven't read the book on what happens in the middle third of, of this wonderful and exciting and in- interesting novel so if you haven't I do urge you to go back and listen to the first episode on the Seawolf and actually maybe go back and listen to other episodes in the series on Jack London uh, we're coming to the end of it uh, fairly shortly but I you know it's, I think there's a lot of related issues in many of the other episodes especially like the one on people of the abyss uh, white fang the iron heel the Martin Eden these these novels all explore some of the same themes that are in the sea wolf in, in different ways and come to slightly different answers so in my last uh, episode we, we met mostly wolf Larson the captain of the ghost and we found him to be the logical consequences of the capitalist dog-eat-dog world that London critiques, and critiques through much of his career, right? London, of course, was a socialist. He was also a social Darwinist, but this, for London, had a very particular meaning. And in, in one is, this is actually the way he gets to socialism, it seems, is because the world is so brutish and violent and despicable to individuals, we need socialism to temper this, th- this dog-eat-dog reality of, of the world. Um, so he's critiquing it, but he realizes it's, it's true. He also believes in moral progress and, and social progress. So this is also partially where he gets his, his social Darwinism comes through. But in the end of the day, he, he is a socialist. Now, Wolf Larsen was a self-made man. He's ambitious, but he's violent. He's very brutish and likely would have died alone if not for the company of the novel's narrator Humphrey Van Wyden. In fact, he, he probably deserved to die alone. He's the logical consequence of this turn of the century, social Darwinism, that praised the struggle of individuals over the community, honored the captains of industry who rose to domination by crushing their competition, abusing the commons, destroying unions and labor organizations, and manipulating the political system. And we have examples of Wolf Larsen doing all these types of things in, in the novel on a very small scale. Uh, morality for these types is secondary to personal gain and, and personal survival. Now, Wolf Larson does more than most people in that position to justify his his violence. Now, one thing I talked a lot about in the last episode was how Wolf Larsen has these. He's such a strong personality. He's got such a strong will, and he's such an impressive figure. Yet, it's he's kind of a disappointing figure by the time you get, you know, through the novel. He's he, London almost tricks you by creating this really dynamic and energetic character and then you realize how much of his life is really a squandered lost opportunities and how much of it he squandered and how he misreads a lot of philosophy to justify just being brutish and nihilistic. One easy response to the character of Wolf Larsen was I suggested someone like Peter Kropotkin, the anarchist, and, the, and this kind of is a good response to a lot of social Darwinian theory, especially the heavily individualist or um, racist kind of social Darwinism we got a lot of in the end of the 19th century and early 20th century. In his book, Mutual Aid, Kropotkin argued that evolution was not simply the struggle for survival between individuals, but rather that the most successful species tended to cooperate. Species that succeeded tended to work together to achieve goals. They cared for each other. They shared resources and divided up labor. That is, in other words, the most successful species were, were anar- anarcho-communists. Kropopkin could also notice that for all the natural history, or throughout all of natural history, this was done without a state structure. So this kind of image of communism as a top-down state structure does not s- seem be necessary it doesn't that's not how it works in nature it's not how it worked in early human communities at least that was Kropopkin's point in the novel now this was one of the origins of evolutionary ethics if you will um, the idea that I, evolutionary ethics I guess can come in different ways in on, on one hand it can be people who see evo- ethics as a product of evolution right but I think it's I, I care more about this other side of the idea of evolutionary ethics. That being, we need ethics to re, as a response to some of of nature and and some of the things that come out of evolution, right? We can't embrace it fully because nature is mo- without morality and not necessarily going to you know create something valuable. I, I've talked several times in this podcast about Thomas Huxley's argument in Evolution and Ethics, where he talks about. Uh, like a garden, ethics is a gardener who ensures that the stronger weeds don't kill the weaker weeds, right? But but sustains and aids and helps the more valuable flowers. Now, I don't know if London knew about Thomas Huxley. I'm not aware that he did. He maybe did it because he read Spencer, so he was kind of up on some of this stuff. But I don't me- remember seeing any mentions to Huxley in any of London's works. But I think London would have agreed with this, that there's a space for socialism to mediate some of the worst elements of nature for london nature was incompatible with socialism and cooperation socialism would consist of overcoming our social darwinian tendencies to dominate or be dominated if we want to take the club law of club and fang from um call the wild or the law of the meat uh, the the laws of nature that are described again and again in their short stories any of these things you know are not where we want to end up as a society he's not embracing this really so one thing i think that's very interesting about van wyden he's one of the early characters that's able to stand up to wolf larsen he's not the only one but he's one of the most important to stand up to him and he starts out standing up to him in the realm of ideas and when that doesn't really work, he's not able to convince Wolf Larsen, he starts to stand up to him more in terms of his actions and his physicality. You know, at the end of the novel he's actually physically confronting um, Wolf Larsen. So he becomes a more powerful ubermensch. I guess he, he, he becomes the better Superman than Wolf Larsen and he does so without really rejecting his values of, of solidarity and, and cooperation. Now, there's times where Van Wyden seems to maybe go a different way. And one of the important aspects of the character Maud Brewster, the woman who shows up on the ship, who Van Wyden falls in love with, the important element of her character is that she does challenge Van Wyden for going too close to Wolf Larsen's ideas, too accepting of some of the most brutal aspects of life on the ship. Now, the first... But let's look at resistance more generally. The first method of resistance that we can look at is that of Van Wyden, who chooses moral suasion. He's kind of a model an alternative. That's what he's going to try to do. He's going to say, yeah, I, I understand your, your philosophy, but you're not applying it right, or you're not doing it right, or you just need to have morality, right? In Chapter 8, I talked about in the last episode a little bit, Van Wyden attempts to re-educate Wolf Larsen on Herbert Spencer, saying that Wolf has read Spencer all wrong. For Van Wyden, Spencer demands that people practice altruism for their own self-interest. Altruism benefits the individual, her children, and then finally her quote-unquote race. As in every other moral argument presented by Van Wyden and later by Maud Brewster, Wolfe is not impressed by this. And he proclaims his own amoral reading of Herbert Spencer. And this is what he says. But with nothing eternal before me but death, given for a brief spell this yeastly crawling and squirming thing called life, why would it be immoral for me to perform any act that was a sacrifice? Any sacrifice that makes me lose one, that makes me lose one, crawl or squirm is foolish. Now, Wolf Arson ends his life with very little change in terms of his attitudes. And this is despite many conversations with Van Wyden. Now, I do think Van Wyden does Present an effective and powerful alternative to it but it's lost on a character like Wolf Larson and here's where we start to we should as a reader start to lose some of our respect for Wolf Larson he's attractive because he holds firm to his beliefs he's such a strong personality he's interesting he's well spoken he's an autodidact he's self-taught he's got a code even uh, to a degree and it's all very impressive Um, but by by the end it's it, he's so insists he insists so much on this philosophy despite the reality around him changing the situation changing and times when he would have been just better off seeking out the help of other people he chooses not to so he never really reads the writing on the wall and Van Wyden is the one presenting that that writing now, you could say that Van Wyden enables Wolf Larsen by providing a forum for Wolf Larsen to to just refine and develop his philosophy, something you couldn't really do with the other crew members who didn't read these books or weren't necessarily that well-educated or, could, you know, wouldn't even think of standing up to Wolf Larson. Van Wyden, as an outsider, Wolf Larson even promotes him at some point in the middle part of the novel to first mate or just mate. I don't, I don't think they had a first and second mate on this ship. It was just it promotes him to mate and, you know, Puts him in a position of authority, in which he could challenge Wolf Larsen a little bit. To, you know, he could be a leader on the ship, and he doesn't always do that. So there is an argument to be made that he did a little bit too much enabling. And I think this is what Maud Brewster starts to say about him. Van wyden even gets a bit of the wolf in him himself when he, when he's alone. He, when he's on the island with with Maud Brewster. This is the end of the novel. You know, he starts to repair the goes to experience these moments of joy at his solitary achievements quote i did it i did it with my own hands i did it wolf certainly would have been proud of this so i think the moral argument is more or less a dud here Um, now morality matters Uh, london insists that morality matters but it's more about your choices you make and what you actually do than what you can say because what you can say is doesn't get you very far right now, the crew takes another approach, and that is of open resistance. Not all the crew, but especially two. Johnson, who was previously beaten up by Wolf Larson and Leach. they form a mutiny. It fails very quickly. It's a very—it's almost when you re- reread it, so it's a, such a non-event, actually. And I'll, I'll talk about that when I do the chapter by chapter analysis. But anyways, this mutiny fails, and Wolf Larson remains in charge of the ship. It provided a significant challenge, more so than Van Wyden's tedious moralizing. The problem with the mutiny was that Larson was fully capable of maintaining his power. He was disciplined, he was powerful, he was intelligent, he's adaptive, and he had this endless reservoir of will. And again, that's the thing that's attractive of Wolf Larson to us, is is the power of his will. The international crew on the Ghost was too divided to be overthrown by Wolf Larson. Being unable to bring equal force of will to bear, the mutiny was doomed to failure from the beginning. The instigators of the rebellion hated Wolf Larsen often for personal reasons, personal offenses. But this mutiny was not a revolution; it was an expression of rage, misguided, without direction, without unity, and without a real alternative of what would come after it. So there was—it was more what we might call almost like a mob, a riot than than a true mutiny, which had a plan for a different order, right? And you know what happens when it, after a mutiny, right? Do they go pirating? right? They'd be criminals at that point, right? Now, I don't know what the law specifically would have been in that case. I I haven't really researched that part of maritime history in that detail. I I know, like, this was a real issue in the 19th century. You know, if you mutinied, you were essentially a a criminal. And it was, you really couldn't go home without facing some consequences for that. So this was really a check on, on this. And, you know, in the 18th century, in the Caribbean, you go pirating or whatever, but it doesn't. Those those options run out by the 19th and 20th century. So instead, a mutiny just becomes this expression of rage without a clear direction. And then everyone just kind of had their personal grievances towards Wolf Larsen, or there was grievances between members of the crew. So there just wasn't any unity here. And this kind of reminds you almost of the way Jack London talks about things like the people and the people of the best, the East Enders in London, who have rage and want to shout out and tear down the system that's oppressing them, but really can't get together to do it coherently. And certainly the protests mentioned in the Iron Heel are this way as well. So these two strategies uh, needed unity. The sailors were simply the other side of Social Darwin's coin. The head was the exploiter, Wolf Larsen, and the tails were the exploited, the sailors. They didn't have a clear vintage of an alternative. Van Wyden... He's more the liberal outside sideline observer of the mutiny. He could have perhaps provided that. He could have come forth. Now he's not a socialist, but (coughs) excuse me. Perhaps he could have articulated some kind of vision, but he didn't. He didn't want to get blood on his hands. He he has ideas to murder Wolf Larsen just as a moral thing. He he comes to the conclusion at various times in the book that he should just outright kill Wolf Larsen because it would be the ethical, moral thing to do first to save the crew, and especially when Maud Brewster goes on, he thinks, almost to save her, and then later on for, for mercy. What force finally defeats Wolf Larsen is his brother, Death Larsen. Death Larson shared many of the characteristics of his brother. They're both Nietzsche and supermen. Both have a ship. Both are autodidex, but um, Wolf has more academic curiosity. After an earlier ship battle, where wolf achieve victory death is able to leave his brother for dead alone on his ship staking his crew this act and there's actually two battles between wolf and death in the course of the novel one is they're both sort of off screen but one is you're closer to anyways one is one takes place while van wyden's still on the ship and the other when he's on the island so one battle wolf wins and one battle death wins. like the final confrontation is won by death larson what's frustrating about this for the reader is that the way to defeat wolf larson is 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 just to embrace kind of a bigger tyrant so the choice here is to choose our tyrant the crew ends up choosing death because he pays them off he paid them better and he he was able to kind of achieve this victory in fact throughout the novel we we see how death larson always has the upper hand over his brother so as impressive as wolf larson is he can't even overpower another petty tyrannical ship captain so over the course of the novel wolf becomes a smaller and smaller figure van wyden on the other hand becomes a stronger more independent a larger figure in the novel Right? So our narrator becomes the protagonist by the end. He doesn't feel like that at the beginning of the novel. And I, I talked about this in the last episode, that he doesn't feel like a protagonist for much of the earlier part, but that changes. And by the end, he is the one driving the narrative. Now, a fourth method of resistance that's not really proffered by anyone in the text, but one that we perhaps imagine London thinking about is his socialism. It's not presented overtly as an option. But it's perhaps the only choice left. The intellectual moralism, the liberal failed. The enraged violence of the unorganized working class failed, and another tyrant doesn't really change anything. It just puts a new crown on a, on a different king's head, or puts the same crown on a different king's head. And in fact, you get there through kind of equality, or even worse, brutality and amorality. So that doesn't, and just meet the new boss same as the old boss doesn't get us anywhere either right so that sort of leaves leaves socialism right and there are moments in the book when you might say well here we really see the crew working together I think like then the storm is a is a good example of that there's a scene uh, in the middle part of the novel where there's a storm where the crew is able to work together and even hated enemies are able to cooperate so I think there are moments uh, where you might be able to imagine socialism as being presented as an alternative but really it's not that much it's it's you kind of got to read into it to, to see that but and but if you know of London's other works you, you almost imagine he's thinking about this in the back of his his mind now van Wyden as I've been saying can certainly be looked at as one of the major forces of resistance uh, in the sea wolf and on the ghost but is he candidate for the Superman himself? And I think he may be. He starts the novel, admittably weak, admittedly cowardly. The crew sizes up immediately. Wolf Larsen sizes him up immediately. He's isolated. He's treated as a plaything by not just Wolf Larsen but also by uh, Mugridge and, and other crew members. But within 100 pages, Van Wyden has become used to life on the ship. He's able to stand up to Larsen, at least intellectually, and, and to a degree through his will. He's learned how to be a sailor. He's learned how to become a navigator. He's learned how to be a ship's doctor. He's learned important skills. So the very first thing that Wolf Larsen criticizes him for is that he is not, he doesn't pay his way. He just let other people do his work for him. That's not true by the middle point of the novel. And these are skills that are gonna make it possible for him to survive later in the novel after he leaves the ghost. Now, does he become the Nietzschean Superman, the one who's able to transcend ethical and create his own moral code that is probably harder to see because it's but what he is doing is he's taking some of his values that he brings with him onto the ship right a, a belief in a basic morality is, is a big one right and a duty to one another and he combines that with with some of wolf larsen's ideas that he sees are valuable like yeah, you should have skills. You should be somewhat self-reliant. That nature is brutal, right? And the answer to that is we should face, face that brutality with a better alternative, not just embrace it and, and kind of fetishize uh, nature. Van Wyden never really abandons his moral code. It's far from socialistic, but it has a baseline in empathy and morality. What happens over the course of the novel is that those ethics that Van Wyden embraced shifted from being revealed That is revealed through education or his religion or just because he wants them to be true to being ethics that are remade through his struggle on the ghost in in this way it's almost like a frontier story if we we think back to like um the, the frontier story of american history presented by frederick jackson turner the idea that through the frontier process kind of democracy is remade in new situations and new contexts over the generations here on this this new frontier you have an ethical code being remade through actual things happening on the ground not just read about in books so that's some of the things some of the ways i think we can look at this this interesting character of humphrey van wyden or Humph, that's how he's how he's often called but i've been referring to him always as as van wyden all right let's look a little bit at the details of what happens in the second third of of this novel um this this part of the novel all takes place on board the ghost but um it's the it's most it's dealing a lot with the this resistance that the crew starts to embrace in fact that's how it starts out in chapter 14 um with with the mutiny so it's it's this chapter 14 is mostly about the crew of the ghost and the resistance larson has, a, has been thrown overboard, and it's not really clear who does it. He manages to get up, and and he asked about Johansson. Johansson's the mate, right? And he's kind of one of Wolf Larson's stoogies. In fact, Van Wyden spoke quite intimately the day before uh, to Johansson. So Larson and Van Wyden go down into the forecastle, and they, they're, they're going to test who's really sleeping. because you know, Whoever pushed him overboard would probably not you know, be faking it. And this is actually the first time that Van Wyden enters the the forecastle, the forecastle. He says, quote, it was my first descent into the forecastle, and I shall not soon forget my impression on it. Caught as I stood on my feet at the bottom of the ladder, built directly in the eyes of the schooner, it was the shape of a triangle along the three sides which stood the bunks in double tier 12 of them. It was no larger than the great... Than the hall bedroom on grub street and yet twelve men were herded into it to eat and sleep and carry on all the functions of living my bedroom in at home was not large yet it could have contained a dozen similar forecastles and taken into consideration the height of the ceiling a score at least it smelled sour and musty and by the dim light of the swinging sea lamp i saw every bit of available wall space hung deep with sea boots oil skins garments clean and and dirty of various sorts those swung back and forth with every roll of the vessel giving rise to a brushing sound as of trees against the roof or wall so this is this is how it's described uh, of course if you've ever been or seen a, a ship forecastle so, you know it's not far from the truth they're actually they are quite cramped they're really just for for sleeping now, while down in the forecastle, they find the mate Johansson has been murdered and the crew rises up against Larson, led by Johnson and Leach. Larson, however, is able to get away. In Chapter 15, the crew initially just dis- despairing that Larson gets away. Uh, the crew knows that revenge or at least the mutineers, the leaders of the mutineers will know that revenge will come soon and that the, the, the leaders of the mutiny expect that they'll be killed. Larson calls for Van Wyden to come, and Van Wyden has to help repair Larson's body, which has been injured. But he also, here we have a moment, this is the first time that Van Wyden sees Larson kind of without his shirt on. Um, and he describes him as an ideal masculine type here. This is the c- a kind of character that, a f- physical image that Jack London was kind of enamored with. You had a bit of that with Martin Eden. Ernst Everhard in the Iron Heel had it too. There's characters in the short stories that, that have this. So I'll just read it because it's, it's kind of interesting. But Wolf Larsen was the man type, the masculine and almost a god in his perfectness. As he moved around to raise his arms, the great muscles leapt and moved under the satiny skin. I forgot to say that the bronze ended with his face. His body, thanks to his stand- Scandinavian stock, was fair as a woman's fairest women, woman's. I remember his putting his hands up to feel on the wound of his head and my watching the biceps move like a living thing under its white sheet it was the biceps that nearly crushed out my life once that i had been s- seen strike so many killing blows i could not take my eyes from him i stood motionless a roll of antiseptic cotton in my hands unwinding and spilling itself down to the floor so that's that's our description of the naked torso of a pool um even you know van Wyden has Plenty of heterosexual credentials uh, in the text of the novel, but you know, he certainly is able to appreciate Wolf Larson's body at this moment. And at this point that Van Wyden promotes or Wolf Larson promotes Van Wyden to mate, making him part of the inner circle of the ship. So chapter sixteen, tensions are high on this ship after this mute attempted mutiny. Larson confronts Van Wyden, telling him that he is actually more cowardly than the mutineers because he did not stand with them. He knows he knows that Van Wyden thinks, well, you know, that he should be overthrown, uh, and he's kind of teases him for this. Like these guys are more manly than you because they actually stood up to me. You accepted, in fact, you accept my promotion. Larson's not wrong here. But he doesn't seem to blame the mutineers, either. He, he seems to have some respect for the mutineers. He confesses that he'll try to kill them someday, but he doesn't respect disrespect them the way he does at times Van Wyden. He doesn't kill them at the moment because he needs their labor for the hunting season. Johnson asks Van Wyden for a favor in case he doesn't make it back from his voyages, kind of like, you know, send this message off to the, my people or that kind of thing. In Chapter 17, we witness the seal hunt, which is presented as simply a brutal slaughter. Uh, most, but most of Chapter 17 deals with the arrival of a storm, which eventually demands great cooperation and hard work by all the hands on the ship in order to survive. In Chapter 18, a few little things happen that aren't that important. But the main thing that happens in Chapter 18 is that the ghost picks up some more castaways. Right? Van Wyden was part of a group of castaways. But this was another group of them and the most important pers- mo- person among these castaways is this woman who later on is revealed to be Maud brewster an intellectual very much like van wyden in fact they know each other professionally chapter 19 in this chapter johnson and leech try to escape um, and they do kind of get off on a boat and try to escape but when they realize they're going to be lost at sea uh, they try to get back on the ship larson plays with them and jokes with them and eventually just abandons them to the sea essentially essentially murdering the two one-time mutineers van wyden feels a responsibility to protect the woman who has joined this horrible crew and that's what he starts to embrace and he says i'm going to be an ethical protector for this woman he's going to have the chivalry so you got a bit of this kind of chivalry code that the woman has to be protected meanwhile van wyden did nothing when wolf larsen murdered these two people so th- this is actually one of van wyden's lowest points in the novel because it's it shows the utter his utter failure of his moral and ethical code to do anything to stop this this captain so next chapter chapter 20 um brewster van wyden larsen are all sort of formally introduced at this point um brewster was kind of sleeping through the, the a bit of the you know recovering from you know her her near death before but she, she's kind of up and about and they all meet and this is kind of london setting up this love triangle that it's not going to be one of the stronger parts of the novel to be sure but it is a bit of a tension that both wolf larsen and van wyden fall in love with with brewster um, we find out that van wyden and brewster know each other from their academic careers and um th- larsen points out something here that's very struck me as very interesting and that is the hypocrisy on idleness that the bourgeoisie holds and he confronts brewster with this he he asked the same thing he asked van wyden earlier in the book specifically you know did you pay did you work your way or did someone else feed you she says i'm afraid someone else has fed me most of my life she laughed trying barely bravely to enter into the spirit of the quizzing though she could see a tear dawning and growing in her eyes as she watched Wolf Larsen, And I suppose someone else made your bed for you? I have made beds, she replied. Very often. She shook her head with mock ruefulness. Do you know what they do to poor men on the state, who, like you, do not have to work for a living? I am very ignorant, she pleaded. What do they do to poor men who are like me? They send them to jail. The crime of not earning a living, in their case, is called vagrancy. If I were mr mr van wyden who harped eternally on questions of right and wrong i'd ask by what right do you live when, when you do nothing to deserve living end quote and you know it's it's a good point of course jack london was arrested for vagrancy earlier in his life and he did have strong feelings about about this and and yeah i agree with him you know idleness is idleness right and the rich idol are, are in some ways much worse than the poor idol but he's asking Brewster the same questions that he asked Van Wyden. I think it's interesting that it's kind of got a repertoire here almost, and I don't know if that's just because he hasn't run into two intellectuals before. He does ask this to every intellectual on there or to everyone who goes on the ship. Is it just the standard questions people on his ship get? I don't know, but they're the same sort of set. Now, Chapter Twenty One: Thomas Mugridge is being tormented and eventually he's hung over the water and he's kind of bait for a shark and a shark bites off his his foot they do however catch the shark it's kind of a weird surreal chapter i found rereading this and van wyden is asked to tourniquet the leg again we see van wyden learning essential and important skills in this case how to be a bit of a doctor Chapter 22, Brewster confronts Van Wyden on not helping Johnson and Leach, who were essentially murdered by Larson. The whole crew saw it. She tries to, th- urges him to sustain kind of a moral courage, not just moral suasion, but moral courage. And I think, you know, I, I talked earlier on about moral suasion as, as resistance, and I suggested it fails. But Brewster has something different in mind. She's saying you really need to have a moral courage. Van Wyden simply tells her that it's impossible. And this is what he says. You must understand, Miss Brewster, and understand clearly that this man is a monster. He's without conscience. Nothing is sacred to him. Nothing is too terrible for him to do. It was due to his whim that I was detained aboard this ship in the first place. It is due to his whim that I'm still alive. I do nothing. I can do nothing because I'm a slave to this monster as you are now a slave to him. Because I desire to live as you will desire to live. Because I cannot fight and overcome him just as you will not be able to fight or overcome him. What remains? Mine is the role of the weak. I remain silent and suffer ignobly, as you will remain silent and suffer ignominy. It is all well. It's the best we can do if we wish to live. The battle is not always to the strong. So that's his response here, essentially passivity. He's saying the outside rules of morality don't apply to the ship. And I don't think that's true. I think at this moment... London is with Brewster, actually. That moral courage has its place at these moments. We've seen other examples of this in London's work. When White Fang is being tortured as essentially a gladiator for the pleasure of men. You know, it's, what was his name? Whelan Scott steps in and stops the fight, buys White Fang, and chooses to give him a better life. He was not in civilization when he was doing that. He was on the frontier. So... And there's other examples, too, of, of this being done. So I think we can say the rules of the outside world in terms of morality and ethics and moral courage and their utility are more necessary outside of the ship. At least that perhaps is what London's point is. Chapter 23, Van Wyden falls in love with Brewster. And it's, it's a kind of a, a sweet little chapter. Um, it's a bit contrived, of course. They've only known each other for a few days at this point, but Van Wyden is fallen in love with Brewster. Chapter 24, the ghost confronts the Macedonia. This is the ship of Larson's brother, Death Larson. And the Macedonia is better equipped. It has more crew. And they're actually harvesting seals ahead of the ghost. So they're kind of getting the best um, seal pelts, and sea furs and before them. So he's... He's kind of stealing their money, stealing by getting there first. I mean, it's not really stealing, but by being there first, they're seizing it. And of course, this is Wolf Larson's logic, right? There's no morality here. It's not, there's no justice in that these seals have to be divided up evenly. It's first come, first serve. And the ghost is losing to a better equipped, more powerful adversary. And if we accept Wolf Larson's philosophy, there's nothing wrong with that. That's just the way the world works. Okay, just quickly in chapter twenty-five, there's a a bit of a battle between Death and Wolf Larson, where essentially Wolf, Wolf's able to to capture some of Death Larson's crew and, and bring him into his own, kind of to make up for some of the crew that that he had lost at earlier points in the, you know either through him beating them to death or lost in the lost in the storm or the loss of Johnson and Leech or these other kind of this other attrition needs to be replaced and he does it by preying on pirating on death Larson's crew so this is like the first confrontation between the two and it's a victory for for the ghost in chapter 26 we see finally the effort by Van Wyden to flee the ghost take Maude Brewster with him to escape the clutches of, of Wolf, Wolf Larson but we learned something else important about this and that is Wolf Larson is incredibly sick he admits to Van Wyden that he's Maybe, perhaps, dying. He has these headaches and strokes that you know they, they eventually blind him. So they're really serious strokes, and that, that's what kills Wolf Larsen, pretty much in the end, or you know disables him. But he's having these attacks, and it's it's weakening him. And he confesses that to Van Wyden. So basically, they they come up with a plan to escape on a boat. They take a bunch of ammunition with them and as many supplies as they as they could, and they drop off they say goodbye to to lucifer um, and and head out and that ends the second third of the sea wolf the final part will deal with the exploration of this island that they find and their final uh, confrontation with wolf wolf larson so that that more or less does it but there was one more thing i wanted to say about the sea wolf and i think this, this might be the time to talk about it because these are the chapters that have the, the descriptions of the harvesting of, of the sea. Uh, so, uh, not the sea otters, the seals. Underneath the entire plot here is a story of American empire and environmental destruction. The brutal destruction of the seals on the Arctic coasts parallels the brutality on the ship. You know, it's almost note for note, right? So Wolf Larsen is a terror to his men but the entire crew turns out to be a terror to the helpless sheep. Quote, and north we traveled with it, ravaging and destroying, flinging the naked carcasses to the shark, and salting down the skins so they might be later adorned the fair shoal soldiers of the women of the city. It was wanton slaughter, and all for women's sake. No man ate of the seal meat or the soil. After a good day's killing, I've seen our decks covered with the hides and bodies, slippery with fat and blood, and scupper running red, masts, ropes, and rails spattered with the sanguary color, and the men like butchers plying their trade, naked and red of arm and hand, working hard at work with the ripping and flensing knives, removing the skins from the pretty sea creatures they had killed. This is a natural. It's really a naturalistic, you know, because a realistic, naturalistic. Description of of what's taking place. But I think we can read this with uh, a little more criticism. Passages like this remind us of the brutal war against nature that shaped so much of the American conquest of the Pacific from the slaughter of the sea otters, to the deforestation of Hawaii, to the wiping out of the bison, to the war on the wolves, to the dropping of the nuclear bombs on Bikini Island, the U.S. Empire and particularly the U.S. Empire and the Pacific, came at the cost of nature. It's to his credit that London, a participant in these activities in his youth, was aware that the Pacific was not an empty ocean to be secured just for American shipping, but a world alive and mostly helpless against the forces of, of capital. right? And it's not just the crew that's to blame for this. He, you know, There's a moral judgment here on the women who buy these, these coats made out of the, the seal seal furs. so that argument is is here as well and i think it's an important part of the story that he's trying to tell so that does it for the second third of the sea wolf i'll come back with the conclusion shortly um, thank you so much for listening if you have any comments please leave them below or write me at hundredpagescast at gmail.com um, if you like jack london if you've been enjoying this series please please let me know and um I'll I'll be glad to share your your comments and your thoughts with other listeners. So thank you for listening once again.
0: Il y en avait un autre parmi eux Qui a passé pour un quiqueux Comme il était pas habile Pour prendre les chars à full steam en pleine face sur la traque Il a pas pu se rendre au Glendale